Good morning once again. I encourage you to t uh, hold on to your order of worship as well as your Psalter hymnal. I'd like to begin by taking any prayer requests that you may have. Those who didn't hear, uh, Jim's sister um, was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer again. Her name's Meg, and then uh, Jim's coworker Dan has hip surgery coming up. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, recovering from. Well, I'd like to thank you all for your prayers on our behalf. Uh, Mackenzie and Margot are doing well. And uh, it's been a joyous transition to parenthood. So thank you for, for all of your guys' many, many prayers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Britt mentioned uh, Sid and Cheryl. Cheryl was diagnosed last month with breast cancer and started chemotherapy three weeks ago. So I believe her, her next treatment is... Uh, this week. So keep them in prayer um, for uh, both of them as Sid is caring for her during this time and, and Cheryl is, is going through uh, this, this treatment. Well, thank you for, for sharing those requests. We'll uh, most definitely keep them in, in our prayer. I will please stand for our call to worship, which comes from Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. One of the great truths that we know from, from Scripture is that um, Jesus... He promises that when two or three are gathered in his name, he is among us. And because of what he accomplished in his first advent, we know that this is the case, that Jesus did tabernacle among us when he lived on this earth, and he now tabernacles among us through his spirit that is present with us. So please uh, turn your Psalter hymnals to number 313. Number 313, as we continue to lift our voices in praise, we'll be singing verses 1 through 5.
You may be seated. And please uh, turn in your order of worship to the prayer for Advent as we anticipate and think about Jesus' coming into this world. Let us lift our voices in prayer as we recite together these words. So please follow along with me in your order of worship as we pray not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Merciful Father, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, who was rich, became poor for us, the eternal Word made flesh, a great light shining in the darkness. Only because of your Word and Spirit have we seen that light and been drawn into its brightness. Give us the grace humbly and joyfully to receive your Son, even as the shepherds and princes who welcomed him, and to look no further for our redemption than to this child lying in a manger. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. And the passage that uh, precedes this, or the verses that precede verse 12 of Romans 10, are verses that you probably are, are quite familiar with. Paul says that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, we will be saved. Um, with the heart one believes and with the mouth one confesses. So Paul then is picking up on, on this theme of, of, of salvation through believing and confessing and speaks about the priority and the importance of the preaching of God's word here in verses 12 through 17. So please pay careful attention for this is God's holy word. The Apostle Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him, whom they, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. Uh, turn also in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg uh, Catechism question and answer 65. Question and answer 65. I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. So question 65 asks, It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts 
by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. Well, boys and girls, uh, as we've been doing every week, our catechism has three main sections. And what are these sections and which section are we currently considering? Violet? And what section are we in? Very good, yes. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And uh, what, is, what is true faith? Annabelle? What is the content of this faith? Noel? Very good. Now this is a bonus question. What is the benefit of faith? Meaning, what does it help us that we believe? Anyone know? Any adults help us out? We're righteous before God. Yes, justification. That's one of the main benefits that the catechism directs our attention to. What does it help us that we believe all these things? That we are righteous in Christ before God and an heir of everlasting life. So question 65, in, in some sense, is summarizing the entire grace section up until this point. And think about how faith functions as a structuring device in this grace section. The grace section began with the catechism expounding about, upon how Christ is both God and man and thus perfectly suited to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. The response then we are to have to this work of Christ is faith. True faith. Faith that includes knowledge, assent, and trust. And the content of this faith is the Apostles' Creed. The benefit of this faith is justification. We are righteous in Christ. And now, question 65 asks, well, where does this faith come from? Or to put it another way, how is faith created and nurtured? Implicit in this question is the question of how do we grow? How does our faith grow in the Christian life? So you can think of the grace section as what is true faith? What is the content of faith? What is the benefit of faith? And now, where does faith come from? Another way to describe the topic that we are considering today is with the title or phrase, the means of grace. What means does God use to both create faith and mature faith? What means does God use to grow us in grace? Now, if I were to ask you, what is the most important ingredient or, or thing that you can do to grow in your Christian life? Now, you don't have to uh, necessarily respond out loud, but just think to yourself. How would you answer that question? What is the single most important ingredient to maturity, not just, over, not just for tomorrow or next week or next month, but over the long haul, over years and even decades? Now, think about some... Uh, friends and, and other friends and family that you have who are Christians, who maybe come from different traditions, faith traditions, how would they answer this question? What is the single most important ingredient for Christian maturity? Imagine you have a child who's about to leave for college and you're wanting to give them advice on how they can continue to grow and stay in the faith. What advice do you give them? Now let's, let's imagine that we could transport back to the first century 
and talk to a first century Christian. Let's say we're able to talk to a, a, a Christian who was previously a pagan Gentile and who was converted to Christianity by the apostolic word, by the preaching of, let's say, the Apostle Paul. Now, let's say we put this question to them and asked, you know, Mr. So-and-so, how do you grow in your faith? And what, what, what does your quiet time look like? You know, what, what Bible reading plan are you, are you following this year? Are you a part of any Bible studies? Or are you a part of any Christian activities? They would probably look at you pretty confused, or this person would. And this person would, would respond by saying, I don't really know what you're talking about, but the way I grow in, in my Christian faith is by gathering with my local brothers and sisters in the Lord in my community on the first day of the week, breaking bread in the Lord's Supper, and hearing the word preached by my local pastor. I then try to take that word, which was given to me on Sundays, and make sure that that word is on the forefront of my mind throughout the week. I seek to be comforted and assured as I taste and see that the Lord is good on the Lord's Day in communion and try to raise my, my family, my children, in this word that I receive every Lord's Day. That would be the response that you would hear from a first century Christian. We have to remember that in the first century, the, the Christian church, individual Christians, did not have copies of the Bible. The only exposure that they had to God's word was through the local church. And so this question would have been obvious to them. And the answer would have been obvious too. The only way in which you grow in the faith is through connection with the local church and the public means of grace that you receive in the local church. This is the point that's brought out in Romans chapter 10. Notice the logic of Paul's argumentation here. He uh, begins the passage which we read uh, by saying, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He previously said that if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be justified, saved. But then Paul says, well, how, how will people call upon God if they have not heard of God, or if they, if they have not believed upon God? And how will they believe in God if they have not heard of God? And how will they hear of God if there's no one there preaching to them? And how will there be people preaching to them if no one has sent them to preach to them? And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And he sums up this passage by saying in verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul here says in verse 17 that the way in which faith is created and implicitly matured and, 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 and grows is through the word of Christ being heard. That is to say, the preaching of God's word, the public means of grace. Now listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy. Now Paul in, in, in uh, the books of Timothy is writing to a young minister, Timothy, who will be laboring and ministering largely in a, a new era. An era in which there are no apostles. The era in which we are currently residing in. The post-apostolic era. And therefore Paul is seeking to give advice to young Timothy on how he should minister and labor in this new and changing world. 
And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Of all the things that Timothy needs to do, has to do as a busy pastor, this is of central importance. Devote yourself to the public reading and teaching of Scripture. Then Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, if you put this question to the New Testament and ask the New Testament, what is the main way in which we grow in our Christian lives? The unequivocal answer is faithful attendance to the preached word, the public means of grace. And this is exactly what our catechism question and answer summarizes for us. Notice the answer. How is faith created and then implicitly uh, uh, matured? The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel and it's confirmed through the administration of the sacrament. Now one scholar of John Calvin helpfully describes John Calvin's view of, of these means of grace and of Christian piety by using the illustration of a fountain. And uh, this individual, this theologian, says that Calvin's view of the means of grace was essentially that, that uh, the public means of grace, meaning the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, were like the top tier of the fountain, the most important and central part of our Christian lives. And then that is to overflow into our family devotions and worship and disciplines. And then that is to overflow into our private piety and discipline. We don't necessarily have to pit the public versus the private, but we are to recognize the emphasis that Scripture places upon the public and corporate means of grace. Scripture does not explicitly speak to private Bible reading because it didn't have, even have a category for private Bible reading. And therefore, it lays the emphasis upon the public means of grace, and it binds our consciences to the public means of grace. What we do during the week is not amoral, meaning it's not just free game. We should think about these thing, things and use wisdom and, and discretion, but they're largely matters of Christian freedom. I have no right to bind your consciences in terms of what your private devotion should or shouldn't look like. But based on the authority of God's word, I can bind your consciences that faithful attendance to the means of grace in a local church is what Scripture calls you to. So it's one of emphasis. Scripture is placing the emphasis upon the public means of grace. And that's meant to overflow into our lives throughout the week. So if one is wanting to, to recover you know, a better, more disciplined family devotion schedule or private piety, based on this logic then, they first need to recover the right view of Sunday and recover a right and diligent uh, view of, of attending the public means of grace, if that is the font of everything else that we do in terms of our personal private piety. Now, sometimes I use the, 
the phrase, you know, we need more Sunday Christians. And that's meant to be somewhat provocative because I think when, when we use the phrase Sunday Christian, a negative connotation comes to mind. We think of someone who, who merely shows up to church on Sunday and then they live like an utter, they live like a pagan throughout the rest of the week. Now, obviously, I don't mean that, but I do use that term, hopefully, to be a helpful corrective to much of evangelical Christianity that's present in our day and age. Now, if you were to ask your average um, evangelical American Christian today this question, what is the main way in which you grow in the Christian life? I think it's safe to say that on the top of the list, or it might not even be on the list, you're probably not going to hear reference to how this person is growing through the ministry of the word by their local pastor in their local church. You might, probably won't talk about the Lord's Supper and how their faith is sustained through eating the bread and wine of communion. They probably won't talk about how they witnessed a baptism previously and that assured them that Jesus, that God's no longer, um, that they're no longer under God's condemnation and wrath because Jesus has, has taken the floodwaters of God's wrath for them. Rather, you're probably going to hear a laundry list of spiritual disciplines that this person is either employing or seeking to employ. And the, the implication that sometimes is made is that if, if we're not engaged in these long lists of, of spiritual disciplines, private spiritual disciplines, our faith might shrivel up and die. And thus Christianity is sometimes um, portrayed as a new form of monasticism. We need to have this robust quiet time. We need to have this robust prayer life. We need to be in these Bible studies. And as Reformed Christians, sometimes we substitute the quiet time out with the reading of the Puritans or knowing all the fine details of Reformed theology. And that's the, really the, the, the litmus test of spiritual and Christian maturity. And so I think much of Christianity today in our country is, is privatized. It's individualistic. And so the emphasis is reversed. It's on the individual. It's on my private experience and disciplines. And church, that's something that you can take or leave. It's just merely secondary and peripheral. But the New Testament reverses it. The emphasis is on what we do on Sundays, and that should then overflow into, the, into our, our familial and private lives. And that's, that's secondary. That's really a matter of, of Christian freedom. And so when I use this term Sunday Christian, I'm using it as a helpful corrective to a very individualistic view of Christian piety in the Christian life. Now this is meant to be somewhat relieving and possibly even the lifting of a burden. Christianity, I think, in our, in our culture can feel very busy. All of these things that we need to keep doing in order to maintain our faith, to grow in faith, in order to make sure that our faith doesn't shrivel up. But when we go back to the pages of Scripture, we are confronted with a pretty simple view of the Christian life. Not simplistic, but simple. The main way in which your faith grows and matures over the long haul is faithful attendance to the public means of grace. And so if you are behind in your Bible reading schedule, if this is a particular busy season of life and you're not able to do family devotions as often as you want to, 
what this is telling you is that you can relax a little bit because the main way in which you and your family grows is through moments like this. And sometimes it's easy for us to, to make laws that are not in Scripture. Again, I'm not saying that what we do in terms of family devotions or what we do in terms of spiritual disciplines are bad or amoral. Far from it. We should make use of the blessings that we have in this age, that we have Bibles, um, that we can attain Bibles at very cheap cost and have multiple in our homes. But we have to be very careful in terms of what Scripture actually says and where Scripture stops. So these passages, this, this question and answer, is telling us that the emphasis when it comes to our Christian piety is upon the public means of grace. And it's when Paul says that the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, what he has in mind is the word that we hear on Sundays. Because in that context, that's the only exposure those individuals in Colossae would have had to the word of Christ. Now I'd like to press into this, this point a little bit more and and uh, seek to, to apply it uh, to, our, to our lives. It's important for us to recognize the culture and times in which we live. I think we, we all can say that in this age of the iPhone, age of the internet, we take in a lot of information, but we don't do a very good job of internalizing and digesting that information. We love the dopamine hit of new information, new content, but as soon as we engage that content, we want more. We want something new, something different. Our minds get bored so, so easy. And so many of us probably have quite a, a plethora of, of biblical intake, whether it through, be through podcasts or books or daily devotions or all of these things. That's not bad. But we should be cognizant of the temptation and, and the challenge of living in our current day and age. We don't do a good job of internalizing and digesting the content we do receive, we do hear. Now, it's interesting to think about how we as human beings adapt and change to the technology that's present in, in, in one's current age. And I do think our brains do adapt to the, the current technology that, that we have. And so you look back at you know, the, the culture of the first century. Now, the culture of the first century was an oral culture, which meant that they had, they had great memories. I remember one New Testament scholar saying that it would not have been uncommon for an audience to hear a piece of literature read to them, or even a, a New Testament gospel or book read to them, and individuals in that audience um, having that piece of literature memorized just by hearing it once. Their minds were that sticky when it came to information. Why? Well, they had to adapt because information was not retained very easily. Having a scroll is not very uh, is, is difficult to create, and not many people had them. And so if you wanted to retain information and have that information be useful for you, you had to remember it, otherwise it was lost. And so people recognized that, and they had great memories, because that's the only way in which they could retain information. But then as technology grows, as you go from scrolls to codexes, the printing press, it's a little bit easier to reference information and material. Then you fast forward to our day and age when you have internet and a smartphone, we have terrible memories. Why? Because we're not forced to have to memorize anything. Because we can look it up 
with the swipe of a screen. Uh, you know, one, one way I like thinking about this is when it comes to directions. You know, those of us who've only had to drive in the era of GPSs have terrible sense of directions. I mean, myself included. But for those of you who've had to struggle with paper maps, you probably have a better sense of direction because you had at one point in your life had to struggle with actually knowing directions. And the only alternative, only way to look up where you're going is a laborious uh, pulling out of a map. And so you're forced to have to know where you're going. But for those of us today, we just plug it into a, an iPhone and you don't have to even know where you are at or what street you're on. Our minds adapt to the technology that we have. Therefore, bringing it back to this point, we have to recognize that we live in this day and age. A day and age that's flooded with information. Information at our fingertips. So our problem usually isn't a lack of intake, but rather our problem is a lack of digesting. And so if the principle here is that the emphasis is on the public means of grace, then I think one implication of this is how well are we doing in digesting the word that we hear on Sundays? How well are we doing in internalizing the word that we hear on Sundays? Based on the logic of what are the passages that we read and question and answer 65, it would seem to suggest that the most important aspect of our Christian piety is the digesting and internalizing of the word that we hear on Sundays. Now, I don't mean that this to be self-serving, not saying, oh, I'm your pastor, you better uh, internalize the word that I'm giving you. This is rather a theoretical principle, no matter what local church you're in. Based on these verses that we've read, it would seem to suggest that it's important for us to digest and internalize the word that we hear. Sometimes less is more when it comes to biblical intake. That word, again, Colossians in Colossians, that word that we hear on Sundays is meant to dwell in us richly. What does it mean for something to dwell in us richly? It means not that we hear it on Sundays, we forget about it on Mondays, but that we are digesting it. We are feeding upon it. We are internalizing it. Not only individually, but with our families. Now, in question answer 65, who... Which member of the Trinity makes the means of grace effective? You can respond to this one. The Holy Spirit. Yes. Sometimes Reformed churches are accused of having a, a low or um, a low view of the Spirit or of forgetting about the Holy Spirit. But that's not at all the case. The Holy Spirit is so central. Without the Holy Spirit, the Word of God will be ineffective. The word of God is only effective in saving and sanctifying sinners because it's accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the word and makes it effective. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who makes the, the sacraments a means of confirmation and assurance. And we see this in scripture. So for instance, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. Paul says this. He says, For we know brothers... Uh, again, he's speaking to the believers at, at Thessalonica. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's giving thanks, not just that the word was given and received by the church in Thessalonica, but he gives thanks that this word was accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one who makes the word effectual in our hearts and lives. Think of Acts chapter 16, when Paul is planting the, the Philippian church, and he comes across Lydia by the river. And we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It wasn't enough for Paul just to preach the good news. The Lord needed to open up her heart. And how does the Lord open up her heart? Through the power of his Holy Spirit. This is why when we, every time we open up God's word, we should pray that the Spirit would be present, making that word effectual for our sanctification, taking off the blinders from our eyes and the earplugs in our ears so that we might not be mere hearers but doers of this word. So we are totally and completely dependent upon the Spirit, not only for uh, our regeneration, but our ongoing sanctification and exposure to God's word. Well, next week, we will consider the sacraments. What are the sacraments? And particularly, how are the sacraments a means of grace? The sacraments as a means of grace is, is one of the distinctives of, 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 of our church or our church plan. And something that separates us from many, many people and many, many other churches. So next week we'll, we'll consider how the sacraments are God's means of grace for us. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only condescended to us in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we also thank you that you have condescended to us through your inscripturated word of God. We know, uh, we're astounded by the fact that you would reveal some of who you are in, in, in human language, language that we can understand. We thank you for your common grace that you have established schools and an educational system whereby we can learn to read and write and communicate with one another so that we can come to a knowledge of the good news of salvation. And we thank you that we have the freedom to uh, gather for worship every Lord's Day and hear your word proclaimed and to taste and see that you are good. We thank you for the Lord's Day, a day in which we can be tangibly reminded of this good news of the gospel, that we are a people being remade into the image of Jesus Christ. We are a people who are called to live and obey out of that life that you have freely given to us. We also lift before you the, the needs of your people. We uh, pray for uh, Jim's sister, Meg, who recently uh, found out that she, again, has breast cancer. We just pray that you would grant her peace during this time and give wisdom to the doctors and be with the family as well. As No, no doubt this is a trying and, and anxiety-ridden time. 
We also pray for Dan as he's recovering from hip surgery. We pray that it would be a quick and speedy recovery and that there would be no setbacks in, um, uh, in, in his recovery. Uh, we also pray for Sid and Cheryl. We, we ask that you would be with Cheryl this week as she has her second treatment. Uh, we pray that you give strength to Sid as he cares for Cheryl during this time. And we just pray uh, that you would heal Cheryl uh, from, uh, from this disease and give wisdom to her doctors. We pray for the many other requests that are upon our hearts. You know that our hearts are full of, 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 of petitions, of angst, of burdens. And so we commit them to your fatherly providence. We know that you are a God who are not, who's not, not only able to grant us all that we stand in need of, but you are a God who is willing also as our faithful Father. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please stand as we uh, give praise to our God using the words of, of oh, oh, the deep unbounded riches, which is printed for you in your bulletin. receive now God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.